Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each week that we meet, we bring you some of the news articles that we've gathered from across the width and breadth of the internet, and we might even introduce a little bit of snarkiness in as we go along. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. As always, I am your your host, and joining me this week is my co-host, the big chip cheese himself, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm very good. I've got lots and lots of storage and chip news to talk about today, so I'm happy. Yes, exactly. The The, the whole point of today's show is to, to make Stephen happy because the, there's been a lot of news in uh, both chips and storage, and we're going to get right into it. Now, the first segment, as always, is one of our favorites, News or Nah, where we take some of the uh, the stories that just jumped right out at us, and we thought, hmm, I wonder if this is interesting or not, but we're going to need somebody's take on whether or not this is something we want to discuss. So let's kick it off with a brand new offering from Samsung. They have announced that they have a new SSD, which includes a little extra special sauce. The Smart SSD CSD flash drive includes an FPGA from manufacturer Xilinx on board. You probably remember Xilinx from some of the coverage that we've had over from them for the last couple of weeks about their pending acquisition by AMD. Um, the FPGA, or the, I'm sorry, the Smart SSD is designed for use in enterprise data centers. Now that package includes both FPGAs and an ARM coprocessor that accelerates storage performance. This is probably something you've heard about uh, around data processing units. Um, this is going to accelerate storage because it's offloading processor it's offloading processing tasks from the system's central processing unit. Now, Stephen, adding ARMs to SSDs to package them up as an enterprise storage solution, do you consider this to be something that's newsworthy? Well, I'd say that overall, this is a newsworthy development. This whole idea of disaggregated, um, decentralized intelligence and uh, local data processing is certainly something that has some legs. I haven't really seen it in practice too much yet, but, um, but this is um, something that the industry is going to. So just to kind of sum up, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, instances right now from the smart NICs to the smart storage devices where we add a fairly powerful CPU or an FPGA to either a NIC or a storage device in hopes that we can do some kind of local processing offload there. Um, this seems to be the direction, like I said, that the industry is heading. Now, one thing that I will point out here, uh, well, for one thing, this is not actually a new product. Samsung uh, debuted the exact same product in PC card form uh, just uh, earlier this year. But what is new about this is that this is a, a disk form factor. So it's something that you can put into like a 2U server. Um, now, it, it, you know, somebody buys one of these things, sticks it in a server, it gives them precisely zilch. Um, there's no benefit whatsoever to having this on its own. The benefit comes when you load a, pro a program onto the FPGA that does some kind of data processing task. So basically, uh, folks should look at this sort of the same way that they might look at Intel's FPGA-based SmartNIC or uh, any of the other DPUs and think, okay, what does this mean for the future of system architecture? Now, one more interesting wrinkle here is that this is an FPGA. And as we talked about last week with the acquisition of Xilinx, um, so far FPGAs haven't had a huge impact or at least the anticipated impact on data center architecture, but that doesn't mean that people aren't trying to do it. So you've got um, you know, Intel with their FPGA based solutions, uh, obviously pushing very strongly on FPGAs. 
Um, you've got AMD buying Xilinx to push FPGAs in the data center. And you've got, uh, you know, now FPGAs on disks. So theoretically, you know, this could be something that's got some legs. Maybe this is going to disprove my notion from last week that AMD's acquisition was a dumb one. Yeah, and if you want to stay tuned and learn a little bit more about some of the things that Stephen was talking about, data processing units, smart NICs, FPGAs, and the like, please make sure you tune into next week's Conversations episode. We're going to dive deep into DPUs and uh, hopefully answer some of those questions that, that Stephen is, is discussing here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that, Tom, because I know that you've spent a lot of time with a lot of these companies, and I can't wait to see your perspective on it. So um, one thing that, uh, you know, obviously there's some big news of the week uh, from a little fruit company in Cupertino, uh, but the fruit company's uh, week wasn't all good. Uh, the ongoing litigation with a company called Vernet X, uh, well, a jury ruled that Apple owes them uh, $500 million for infringement on their VPN on demand patent. Um, this is on top of a $400 million that Apple already paid to settle a communications security patent dispute that affected FaceTime. Tom, is Apple going to feel this sting? Is this any news at all? Well, here's the funny thing about this. Um, if Apple wanted to crush Vernet X out of existence, Tim Cook wouldn't even have to blink. He could find the money to do this in his couch cushions. Here's the biggest problem about this. Vernet X is probably the most successful patent troll when it comes to suing Apple. And yes, I know that calling companies patent trolls tends to get people's hackles up, but that's basically who this company is. They purchased some patents that are being used by Apple devices. If you ever wondered why FaceTime started sucking after the first year and why you can't connect directly to somebody else's device and why all those promises of them making it an open standard never materialized, you can thank the friends from Vernet X because they sued to have one little tiny component and they want the money for it. Uh, same thing with this VPN, VPN on demand patent. Why are you able to patent this? Well, it's it, it frustrates me. The reason why this is news is not because Apple's gonna have to pay $500 million. That's the interest on a very small bank account that they own somewhere. What's news is, is that every time a patent troll succeeds, that's a war chest to go back to the well to do this. And until they run into a big company like, well, I say a big company, I'm sure we're talking about Apple, until they run into a company like say Newegg, which does not give up until they've invalidated the patent, they're just gonna keep going. So I don't anticipate them to go away anytime soon. However, I was telling a friend of mine about this story. Um, one of the ways that Apple has chosen to combat these kinds of patent infringement lawsuits was actually to close the Apple store in Plano, Texas because it was the only physical point of presence that allowed them to be sued in the US district court that was friendly to patent trolls. So I expect that Vernet X is gonna take their winnings, lick their wounds and walk away before somebody decides to put them all out to pasture. Well, I honestly wouldn't be crying too badly if that's what happened, Tom, because these patent troll lawsuits, like you say, um, in most cases, these don't, um, you know, these aren't really help anybody. They're not incentivizing innovation. In fact, they're disincentivizing it. And, um, you know, I'm all for patents, but I'm very concerned about broad software patents. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And, and we, we want to encourage as much innovation as possible. Uh, for example, just before the pandemic, uh, some of our storage field day delegates had a chance to visit Western Digital, and they learned a little bit about zoned storage. Now, at the time, uh, they learned that dividing a storage device into performance zones isn't just for traditional spinning hard disk drives. SSDs can benefit from this technology too, and that's what a Western Digital had been talking about with our delegates. 
Um, now we have the very first fruit of this technology as Western Digital has showed off their first zoned solid state disks. Are zoned SSDs the wave of the future, Stephen? Well, this is a, a really interesting technology. And let me just quickly give everybody a, a, a two second primer. So essentially what a zoned drive is, is it kind of divides a drive into multiple sections based on performance and reliability characteristics. So you may have heard about shingled drives and how they, you know, the rights to them can stink. Well, um, for a while now, companies have had drives that have both shingled and non-shingled areas so that you can write to the non-shingled area and then stage it back to the shingled area later. The drive has usually handled that, but there's a standard that uh, Western Digital is pushing that would allow the host to control that. So for example, imagine a situation where you've got a host that has uh, you know, a single physical drive with different formats on it. So you could use one for more random access data and then the other for more long-term archiving data and the host would decide where to put that. So at Storage Field Day back in January, um, we got to visit Western Digital and they were talking about this technology and they mentioned that it's useful for SSDs as well. And at the time, this was a lot of fun. I think a lot of people were envisioning what an SS, a zoned SSD would be. Well, now we don't have to envision it. The UltraStar DCZN540 exists and it is a zoned SSD. Essentially, we've got um, sort of slower or less right enduring, um, you know, multi-level NAND as well as single level cells that we can write to quickly and uh, with a lot more writes. And like I mentioned, you know, the host is going to control where to put the data. So this is kind of nerdy storage stuff, but it's also kind of cool storage stuff. I mean, the idea that you could treat a drive as two drives and have two different kind of characteristics in one drive, that's cool. Uh, the only real gotcha here is that this is controlled by the host and not all hosts can handle these kind of drives. You can't just slap this thing in and see a benefit. Kind of like what we were talking about with that uh, FPGA SSD. You know, you put this thing in something and nothing's going to happen because, you know, you have to have a host that's going to control it and can control it smartly. So, you know, it is, uh, they've added support in Linux. They've got a standard. Um, I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, does it have any impact? probably not on normal people, but uh, data center architecture, sure, maybe. I'm interested to see that as well. I mean, ringing a little bit more performance out of an SSD is not something your average user is necessarily going to need, but I think when you're looking at the scale that we're doing things now in the data center and in the cloud, every IOP helps. Absolutely. And if you're interested in this technology, by the way, just head over to the Tech Field Day website, look for Western Digital, and you can find a great presentation specifically about zone storage. So Tom, uh, I know that you love talking about our friends uh, <laughs> at uh, Alphabet, uh, AKA Google. Um, they have unveiled an enlightening bit of technology. Um, Project Tara, which means of the tower, uses light beams to exchange data at 20 gigabits between towers. The technology is similar to the way that fiber optic works today, except without the cables. The idea is to bring high-speed network connectivity to rural and developing areas without the need to build out infrastructure. Uh, the general manager says that the Kenyan pilot tests were very successful and the tech should be rolling out in other areas soon. Tom, uh, Google is bringing internet over light to the, to the world. Is this news? I think this is news. And the reason why is because this is a pilot project that Alphabet X, which is the Skunk Works division of Google Bet, is uh, has been working on for a couple of years. They're, they're, it's a proof of concept, basically. We're going to try to do uh, 
internet over free space with light pulses instead of using radio waves. Now, um, if you are a fan of Field Day, you probably, uh, at our last networking Field Day, you heard from a company named Airvine, which is doing something similar on a smaller scale for building uh, network connectivity. They're trying to run wires through your building, only not use wires. They're using uh, 802.11ad uh, standards-based wireless. That uses radio waves. What Google is doing is they're building two towers, they're pointing light beams at each other, and they're using the light pulses to, to basically create code, which is something we know we've been able to do in the past. It's not easy. It's not cheap. Well, luckily, Alphabet has solutions to both of those problems because um, they have a core of engineers and they have more money than they know what to do with. Um, I'm really happy to see that that Alphabet has been focusing on these emerging markets. We mentioned Kenya, which is where the pilot program was, but they're already starting to roll those out in, in places like Africa. Um, when you look at how Alphabet is doing this, they're using traditional infrastructure to you know, basically make it a little bit easier um, and, and avoid kind of these, these challenges of burying fiber or you know, dealing with radio contention, as opposed to you know, uh, evil genius Elon Musk, who's just, you know, launching a massive uh, constellation of orbiting satellites and he's going to do uplink and downlink the approaches couldn't be different but the result ultimately is the same we're trying to bring as much connectivity to as many places as possible and if that's the ultimate goal of this alphabet project more power to them i just i uh, i was listening to a podcast this morning and uh, they're a little negative on google because as most of us know that Google's job, Google's business is putting eyeballs on ads and all technology that they develop is around that. And I hope that at least in the Alphabet X division, they're more nerdy than that. So news for coolness, and I hope not news for nefarious reasons. Well, when you mentioned two towers with light shining between them, I got to think Sauron. Sorry, that's all <laughs> I can think of. Well, we, we know that, that Google can read everything. And they're, they're, they, now, if, if you're listening, Alphabet X guys, please make sure that the tower is just a regular radio tower and doesn't have a big scoop at the top with a big glowing eye, because that's a dead giveaway. All right, Stephen, uh, one last storage story here for news or not. Um, one of the very first companies that was able to deliver storage that didn't have any moving parts was Violin Memory. Their DRAM arrays astonished the industry uh, about a decade ago, and the company was very quick to add NAND flash arrays as well. However, uh, business didn't work out for them, and they actually went bankrupt back in 2016, but they were relaunched with private equity money after they acquired the storage assets of the company formerly known as Ziotech. Now we're hearing that that company, Violin Systems, has been acquired by StoreCentric. Steven, you've been following the story since the very beginning. What's going on here? Yeah, this is going to be the craziest thing ever. Okay, so let me just let me just sum up and say that StoreCentric is a very clever company who is buying very good assets, probably for very small money, and then relaunching them and respinning them, probably profitably. Now we don't. All this is probable because, of course, as a private company, they don't have to tell us. But the thing is, they've been doing this for a little, a couple of years now, and it seems to be working. So more power to them. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm. 100% in favor of what StoreCentric is doing here. But essentially, uh, hold on, you know, buckle your seatbelts, folks, because this story starts way back in 1996 when Ziotech was founded as basically an enterprise storage company. Um, Ziotech, okay, get it ready. Here we go. Here we go. Ziotech sold to Seagate. Seagate spun Ziotech back out, invested in the company. They created these intelligent storage element bricks. 
that company was eventually renamed XIO. XIO split into Excelio, which was an edge computing company, and Violin Systems took the storage assets. Violin Systems is now part of StoreCentric. But who's Violin Systems? Well, Violin Systems is Violin Memory. Okay, we're done. Nope, not remotely. So StoreCentric was actually born from the bones of Nexan. Nexan combined with a company that you've probably heard of called Drobo under the aegis of Imation, yeah, the media company, um, which also bought Connected Data, which was kind of a sort of spin out of Drobo. And then it kind of went back in and then it was relaunched as a new company. And then StoreCentric bought that because that became StoreCentric. <sighs> a couple of years ago, they bought Vexata, which was another NVMe company and Retrospect, which is a data protection company. So StoreCentric has a lot of names here, a lot of products and a lot of areas, but essentially what they've done is they bought a bunch of great technology. They're kind of mixing it around and figuring it out. And then just uh, about a month ago, StoreCentric actually just launched their own, their first StoreCentric branded product, which was basically a data fabric kind of thing using the retrospect technology. So is this news? It's not really news that violin's not dead, right? That's okay, whatever. What's news is that we have a company that's trying to basically build up a new enterprise storage uh, mega company here um, without too much money, without, you know, huge amounts of, uh, you know, evil investment, you know, without any kind of like Ponzi scheme in the stock market or anything. I think they're kind of trying to make products and sell them. And I salute that. I just want to let you know that as we were doing the, the notes for the story, I tried to diagram out that whole family tree using one of those yarn conspiracy board things. And I didn't get very far. And, and then I think I was discovered by the storage Illuminati and, and I had to shut the project down. But Stephen, thank you for breaking that down because that was an impressive family tree. Well, uh, if, it, you, if it's any help, I actually just tweeted that family tree too. Uh, because <laughs> of course I am a member of the storage Illuminati. Yes, all, all, all hail Sauron. So, um, well, that'll just about do it for news or not. Nah. Uh, we went into depth with a lot of some of those stories because, of course, you know, we have uh, the, the big storage person himself here, Mr. Stephen Foskett. But the good news is, is that storage is not the only thing that Stephen is really good at. Stephen's also a, a big chip person. And if uh, unless you were hiding from the election results, you know that this week was one of Apple's big weeks because they finally decided to take a bite out of Intel. As announced at their One More Thing event yesterday, Apple is going to start making their own chips. And you're not surprised by this because if you go all the way back in the archives of the checksum, Rich Straffolino brought this to you back in June that the rumor was is that Apple was going to start making their own ARM-based chips. That's going to be called the M1. It's a system on chips specifically designed to work with the next generation of Mac computers. The chip is based heavily on the existing A14 line, which is something you're probably using in your iPad Pro right now. Um, it has 16 billion transistors. It has the traditional mix of high performance, high clocked cores and low performance power saving cores. And uh, one of the things they were able to do with one of the new computers is they were completely able to rip the fan out of a laptop, which is heresy, but not for Apple. Um, the performance numbers seem so far to indicate that this chip is a match for all existing laptop CPUs that are being offered by Intel and should gain because that means that developers are now gonna be able to start writing technology specifically for these chips. And that's gonna increase their performance significantly. If you want to buy an M1, you can go over to Apple's website right now. You can buy a brand new MacBook Air, you can get it in a 13 inch MacBook Pro and you can get it in the small form factor Mac mini. 
Now, Stephen, you have been really hot on this ever since you got your first iPad Pro and clocked it and were touting all of the great performance that it was capable of. How do you see this move working out for Apple? And what signal does Apple shift to making their own laptop silicon send to the rest of the chip manufacturer market? Yeah, so let me just start by saying that I am bullish on this and I think that this is a good move for Apple and that Apple's uh, product, their initial product is a pretty good one uh, because it's gonna sound like I'm dumping on Apple. And I know that the, you're gonna be, what, Steven dumping on Apple? But it's true, Here, here's the thing. So back, as, as you mentioned, Tom, back in 2018, I actually wrote an article for Gestalt IT called the new iPad Pro proves that Apple doesn't need Intel and AMD anymore. And in that article, I compared the performance of the then current A12X CPU in the iPad Pro, the 11 inch iPad Pro with basically everything I had at hand. And I showed that that thing actually outperformed almost everything in um, everything I used, including this machine here, my notebook uh, that I'm recording on right now, which is an Intel uh, i9. Um, in single core performance, the, uh, the A12 was almost there. In multi-core performance, it was just astonishing. I mean, this was a, an eight core chip, but like you said, it's kind of like, you know, four fast, four slow, but still it's, um, it was a really amazing, amazing performance comparison. And basically it just blew everything else out of the water. Like you said, you take a, um, almost any laptop that anyone's gonna buy at retail and this thing is just gonna kill it. So, so let's set that aside. Apple did a really nice job with Apple Silicon because Apple has been doing a really nice job with the A-series CPUs for a long time. Now, let me talk about a little bit of disappointment. So if you look at these three products, you've got the Mac Mini, you've got the MacBook Air, and you've got the 13-inch MacBook Pro. Um, take a look at these products and you'll notice a couple of things jump out in you at the specs. Number one, the specs are identical. All three of them have the same CPU, uh, the same number of cores. They all have either eight or 16 gigs of RAM and that's it. And if you look at the side of the machines, you'll notice that all of them have two Thunderbolt 3 or USB 4 ports. All three of them have kind of not a lot else in terms of ports and su support and everything. They all have the same storage offerings. Um, they're not all exactly identical. So the base MacBook Air has a seven core GPU instead of an eight core GPU. Um, it's likely because of the missing fan that that sucker is going to be clocked slower, uh, or at least that it's going to throttle an awful lot. Um, but other than that, basically, you've got um, three systems that are basically the same system in three different bodies. And this does not bode well. So the biggest surprise for me about Apple Silicon was, frankly, that it's a system on a chip. And a system on a chip is essentially what it sounds like. It's a chip that includes not just the CPU and the GPU, but also things like the memory controller and the storage controller and the Thunderbolt controller and all that stuff. And, and the memory is on that chip too. This is basically how uh, companies have built smartphones for a long time. And occasionally there have been system on chips for PCs, but they've always sucked. And the reason they've always sucked is because SOCs, um, basically you're limiting yourself. So one of the reasons, you know, you go to Best Buy and you look at the computer aisle or even the Apple store, you're gonna notice that there's different options. There's different CPU levels, different clock speeds, different numbers of ports, different types of ports, even on Apple. You know, remember that we've got MacBook Pros with two Thunderbolt ports and we've got those with four, you know, two on each side. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have that here. And the reason we don't have that here is because it's an SOC. It's the same damn thing 
in different boxes. This is a, a bit of a challenge here because um, I, I don't doubt that Apple's going to develop a new SOC that's going to have, I don't know, four Thunderbolt ports. And maybe they'll develop one that's going to have, I don't know, eight fast cores instead of four fast cores or something like that. They might even put two SOCs together on the same board in order to develop a pro version. But I think that they're limiting themselves here a bit with their sort of phone and iPad centric architecture by building an SOC that doesn't have a lot of forward compatibility. The only real difference between these systems is that the Mac mini includes a couple of uh, USB 3.2 ports um, on the uh, like type A ports along with the two type C ports um, and a gigabit ethernet adapter. And that's about it, um, which means that basically we're seeing what this SOC can do. And what this SOC can do is actually not a lot. Now, like I said, I'm not griping about the, the CPU performance. I think the CPU performance is gonna be really game changing, especially with the ones with the fan because they'll be able to actually maintain that performance. And the GPU performance sounds good too, but you'll notice that Apple stopped talking about beating discrete GPUs with their GPU now. They're really just talking about beating integrated GPUs. So maybe that's a little bit of an asterisk there. And if they do create like a dual SOC motherboard for the Pro, I'm not sure how that's gonna work. I'm not sure how the software is gonna balance across that, how they're gonna take advantage of all this GPU power that they might theoretically have. Honestly, I think this whole thing is really, really limiting. And I'm very concerned with the fact that you can only get 16 gigs of RAM, you can only get two Thunderbolt ports, you can only get an eight core GPU, you can only get four fast and four slow CPU. That's, that's it, that's all this chip does. I'm going to hold my skepticism a little bit until we see maybe an M2X or B or Z or N or Y or whatever they decide to call it um, and see where they go with the pro systems. But for now, I'm underwhelmed by this thing. Yeah, I I didn't get a chance to watch the announcement. I was I was doing some other stuff, so I basically got the the Cliff's Notes version. And, and a lot of people are are kind of pointing out the limitations. Uh, one of the things is is that this the M1 does not work with any kind of external GPUs, which was something that a lot of folks have been really happy about in some of the latest versions of uh, Mac OS and and on the Pro devices. Is now I can hook up a bunch of external graphics cards to either do offload processing or just you know have really really sweet graphics performance. And I think that Apple specifically targeted these three smaller machines on purpose. The people who buy a MacBook Air are not graphics workers. They're not movie editors. They're not professional workers. They're not gonna tax this thing all the way to its limits. And I think what Apple's gonna do is they're gonna do a lot of data collection on this. They're gonna see how people use it. And then, you know, in six months or in a year, we're gonna see the next MacBook Pro come out in a bigger form factor with, like you said, possibly an M2X chip that has more cores, or maybe they'll they'll re-engineer whatever the next version of Mac OS is to provide maybe kind of like an offload, essentially treating the other SOC like a DPU or something, which would allow for better performance. But I think you're right. Apple has backed themselves into a corner by creating this SOC architecture that essentially is like it's fire and forget. Maybe they're hoping that they can just keep revving MacBooks every year and getting people to buy those like they do iPads, which is not going to work out well for them because as we've seen in the iPad market, um, people don't go out and buy a new tablet every year just because it's a little bit faster with a LiDAR camera. Um, there are a lot of things that Apple can do with this chip. And that's one of the things that Tim Cook was quoted as saying in, in one of the articles yesterday was there are a lot of MacBooks we want to build and we just can't, which was a very large cannon shot across the bow of Intel. Because as we all know, the thing that started this was the fact that Intel was late to deliver the successor to Haswell, which really hampered Retina MacBook 
production for a long time. As a matter of fact, you know, basically the 2013 to 2015 Retina MacBooks are all identical. There's nothing different about them at all other than the date stamp on them. So I think ultimately what you're going to see is Apple may try some different things. I fully expect that we are going to see the thinnest MacBook Air ever. And it's still going to have terrible performance because it's not going to have a fan in it. It's not going to have a headphone jack in it. It's going to be missing a lot of stuff. And they're just going to sacrifice as much as they can just to say that they have the thinnest laptop. I think what we're going to see is the pro version. Maybe Apple is going to take a risk and break out the processor and the memory controller and everything and make it look more like a traditional laptop board and say, this is how we're solving the pro problem. Now, of course, in these laptops, it really doesn't matter because it's not like you can rip and replace pieces anyway. But if the pros don't buy the laptops, which is one of the biggest arguments that we've heard for people for years is that Apple is forgetting about the professional market with the way that they're specking their machines, Apple is not going to be very successful and they're going to lose people to go back to Dell, Toshiba, Lenovo to get their professional grade machines. So they're taking a risk. I think, like you said, I'm bullish on this. It's going to pay off in the long run. But that's not going to be without growing pains. And I'll tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm jealously coveting my, my 2016 MacBook. I'm not upgrading anytime soon because I don't see any advantage to doing it. Yeah, I, I, well, I would be remiss to point out uh, that they, they do have a headphone jack. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That. These have a headphone jack because that's the, the, the one thing they don't do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. The new ones do so because it, funny enough, they'll kill everything else off and they'll kill a headphone jack everywhere else. But for some reason, laptops still need it. So yeah, so I, I do. I feel like really the, the the core sentiment here is is essentially the M1 is not maybe what I had hoped it would be. It really does kind of paint Apple into a corner because of the SOC architecture, and um, they're going to have to develop an all new chip for the future. And just keep this in mind that Apple has a lot of volume, but they don't have all of Intel's volume, and so Apple can't afford to have like twelve different SKUs of chips especially if they're SOCs, because they can't just design, like, you know, prepare different components, different modules to it, because it is what it is out of the foundry. And so I'm, I'm thinking that the future is going to look very different, where we're going to have basically two chips, period, maybe three, but probably just two. We're going to have the Air Mini 13-inch Pro chip, and then we're going to have the, the pro chip, which is going to have maybe twice, two as much of everything. And that's it. And I'm really not sure what the, what the Mac Pro gets if it's an SOC, because how are they going to do this thing? I don't know. We'll see. But we got to move on. Um, yeah. You know, we've got a couple of, just one more story here that's a security story for you, Mr. Security Field Aimeister. Um, so Intel, uh, speaking of chips, um, seems to be in the sights of Agent P security researchers have announced this week that they have discovered a new side channel exploit capable of uh, deducing encryption keys in the chip maker's new SGX secure enclave. The attack is called Platypus, uh, thus Agent P, uh, uses a running average power limit interface to infer the data being stored in the chip, including SGX enclave. Intel has uh, published patches that uh, require more privileged access uh, to get to this, um, to limit reporting energy consumption and foil these attackers. Tom, um, this is a weird side channel attack. Is this another uh, meltdown here? Man, I don't know. I, the, when I read this, this story last night, the first thing I thought was, I know what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Intel getting exploited again. Um, 
the weird thing is, is that this is like the quintessential side channel attack. We found a vulnerable subsystem. We are able to infer things with it. And if you read the uh, article that's linked in the show notes, it's actually really interesting because this was an instrumentation piece that they never intended to be used in this manner. But some researchers found out that if you hit that interface in just the right way, you can infer what data is passing in the registers behind it which normally wouldn't be a big deal. I mean, we dealt with Spectre and Meltdown and we know how to fix that. The problem is, is that you can get access to the SGX Enclave. And uh, Stephen and I have attended a lot of briefings around some of the next generation of Intel chips and SGX is their way forward essentially to eliminate the problems that Spectre and Meltdown have been causing because with the SGX, SGX technology, they're encrypting all of these things in memory, in the CPU, in an enclave, no different than the Touch ID enclave or the Face ID enclave in your iDevice. Nobody knows what's in there unless you have authorization to see it. And these security researchers, that what they did is they essentially said, guess what, we can figure it out and we can get the encryption keys for that data. That's a big deal. Now, credit to Intel, they immediately rushed the patch out, and, and it was actually kind of brilliant the way that they fixed this. First of all, um, they require you to have uh, elevated privileges to be able to access this instrumentation piece, because it, traditionally in Linux, you could just access it as a regular user. So now they're cutting out anybody who doesn't have a root access server. Then they dampened the ability to get fine-grained statistics from this interface. I mean when you think about it really do you really need to know down to the like the the nanowatt what kind of power processing you're getting out of this thing probably not so intel said by removing the fine grain statistics you're not able to get as deep as you need to, to to rip these keys out but here's the problem security researchers are getting way smarter and way better at their jobs and it used to be that if you wanted to try to get exploits like this you needed to have some kind of physical access to the device. You need to be able to pump something into the chip or to be able to get physical access to the box. You don't need to do that here. A non-trivial, non-physically present remote access ability to do this kind of exploit in a side channel. Well, first of all, I'm sure the NSA is licking their chops because they would love to be able to do this. But more importantly, this reduces faith in Intel's security posture. And I want Intel to be secure because Intel has been producing a lot of chips that people use around the world, not just in laptops, but in everything else. As everything has started going to x86 architecture, that's where all of the innovation's happening. To have a major side channel security attack in your secure enclave, you've got to wonder what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that uh, Dr. Doofenshmirtz is enjoying seeing his thermometer inator being used to infer security <laughs> chips. But uh, I mean, essentially, that's what it is, you know. And we've seen exploits like this before. And I'm always so impressed when we do see them. Um, I'm reminded of the measuring the power that a CRT consumes in order to infer which uh, characters are being displayed mm -hmm. at once. I mean, it, it's something like that. I don't know how they're going to fix this. I don't know how they're going to, um, you know, fix all of these potential uh, avenues of exploit. Um, I guess we'll see. Um, on the other hand, I think that um, I'm going to be an iconoclast here and say, I feel like Meltdown and Spectre were kind of a nothing burger, honestly. Yeah. And I feel like the reaction was just like way, way over the top. In fact, um, <laughs> I actually turn off those uh, mitigations on my lab machines just because I'd rather have a little bit of uh, performance than, uh, than the mitigations, especially on the older like Skylight chips and stuff like that. Um, 
I'm not too worried about it. Maybe in a multi-tenant environment. Um, eh, I don't know. What do you think, Tom? Is this, I mean, security, is this a really a major exploit or am, am I not taking it seriously enough? I don't think you're not taking it seriously enough. I think you, you have done what most average people will do, which is examine the exploitability of this and the likelihood that it can produce legitimate, actionable data versus how much effort it's going to take to do this. It's like, um, you know, uh, door locks. Door locks keep out common criminals. If somebody wants to break into your house, they're going to do it. So for a certain segment of the population, I think this is a big deal and they need to try to work around it. For you and me, this isn't a big deal. I think yeah. ultimately it's going to turn out to be like Spectre and Meltdown. It's going to be more that this is even possible, not I'm at risk of having all my stuff stolen. Yeah, that's actually a good metaphor. If you've ever seen a spy movie where they use the infrared camera to see which keys the guy pushed in order to get through the door lock, this is that basically. Yeah. And in my, and my favorite movie, Sneakers, when Robert Redford runs into a keypad door and he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then just kicks it in. That's that's the other aspect of it because odds are good if someone's going to steal your data, it'll be socially engineered anyway. All right. Well, that should just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Thank you very much for joining us. Remember that you can watch us live every week at 1230 Eastern Time on YouTube. Uh, we will also be premiering these on Facebook at the same time. We also have a podcast feed available if you'd rather hear the dulcet, towns, dulcet tones of our news as you do your morning run or walk. Um, please make sure you leave a rating on those podcasts in your favorite podcast application of choice that lets people find our beautiful snarky newsiness and we love people listening to us. Um, we will be back next Wednesday to cover more news because it seems like things are picking up and accelerating in the last quarter of the year. And uh, there's a lot of things that we're going to be talking about. So please make sure you stay tuned. Um, Stephen will be uh, a little bit busy next week. Stephen, why don't you tell us what you've got going on? Sure. Um, I uh, mentioned in the last few episodes my Utilizing AI podcast, which I do recommend picking up, by the way. It's been a lot of fun to record it. Uh, next week is AI Field Day. So uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, Pacific time, we're going to be live streaming at techfieldday.com. Uh, a lot of uh, practical applications of AI. So we've got companies like uh, you know Juniper and Aruba talking about how they're using AI. Uh, we also have a chip company, BrainChip, talking about how they've developed a low-powered AI processor for IoT devices. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we've got Intel talking about their analytics zoo, which is just as cool as it sounds. Uh, and I believe Cisco as well. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So please do join us um, uh, next week, uh, again, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, for AI Field Day. Just go to techfieldday.com. All right. And uh, we will be carrying coverage of that, like you said, on techfieldday.com. We'll also be out there on Twitter, uh, but we will be back with the rundown next week. Uh, we'll have some great stories for you. Uh, but for this week, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for my amazing co-host, Stephen Foskett, and for our recently departed Alex Trebek, Alex, you will be missed. Um, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to seeing you all next week on the rundown.